A Brief History of a Perfect Future, Inventing the World We Can Proudly Leave Our Kids by 2050. Welcome to Textination. I'm Fred Fishkin, and joining us is the author of a book by that title, Chunka Moy. Thank you for joining us, Chunka. Thanks, Fred. Thanks for having me. A really fascinating read here, uh, talking about the future, what it can be, the fairly near future. So give us the overview of what, you're, what you set out to accomplish here. Sure. Well, 2050, uh, about 30 years from now. And I think most people, when they think about 30 years from now, their eyes sort of glaze over. And, um, you know, it lacks salience. It's what the behavioral economists call salience. You know, can I do anything about that uncertain future today? And oftentimes the answer is no. And the point we try to make in the book is the answer should be yes. And 30 years may seem blurry in the future. For me, it's, it's 30 years is really clear. Uh, 30 years, in 30 years, by 2050, my daughter will be the same age I was when she was born. Um, and that's very real to me. The world that she lives in and inhabits uh, by 2050 um, is important to me. And if we look across through the landscape of, um, of, of, of this world that we ha inhabit today. Uh, there's some really great things happening and there's some ser serious challenges. And it's easy to imagine a, 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 a future in 30 years that's not so great. I mean, I can talk about, you know, just some popular works of fiction, 1984, you know, technology takes over. Um, Minority Report, you know, AI gone wild. Uh, brave new world, right? Genetics and genomics um, and drugs changing changing the world, the way the world looks. So lots of easy ways of thinking about bad outcomes. What we try to do in the book is to say, actually, that future is in our hands. And at the playing off of an aphorism by Alan Kay, uh, one of the you know core inventors of personal computing, uh, the best way to predict the future is to invent it. So we can predict how things may turn out and we could have rosy or not so rosy scenarios, or we can say to ourselves, what world can we actually build based upon the tools we have? So that's a long-winded first answer to your question, Fred, but that's what the book is about. What kind of world can we build based on the predictable technological capabilities we have in our hands? And what should individuals, what should organizations, and what should governments do in order to move us towards that world? And you've talked about the speed at which technology has advanced here in, in quite a few different areas that can enable this brighter future that, yeah. uh, that we yeah. all hope for. Tell us about that. Well, you know, one of the things that, that uh, we try to do is we don't try to predict the future, but we do try to predict the technological building blocks we'll have for that future. And if you look at the last 50 years, um, you can see patterns. And they're very clear, especially for, for your listeners in technology, you know, core elements of fundamental technologies have improved at an exponential rate for the last 50, 100 years. And our simple um, um, assertion is that it will they will continue to do so. So capabilities in computing, in communications, in information, in genomics, in energy, in transportation, in water, Th those capabilities will continue to increase, improve at an exponential rate. And correspondingly, the, the cost, the per unit cost is going to decrease at an exponential rate. And so the, the capabilities curve is going to look like that. The cost curve is going to look like that. 
So in 30 years, I can't tell you uh, what computing companies will be dominant, but I can tell you pretty, pretty clear that um, computing is going to be a million times faster and probably a million times per unit cost cheaper, right? And the same for bandwidth and communication, the same for access to information, same for our ability to, uh, to sequence genomes and to, you know, to build a biological foundation for innovation. So in 30 years out, we're going to be able to throw as much of those capabilities at any problem as we want. Um, and the question that we pause in the book is, well, what kind of future do we want to build with those things? And you use a phrase that uh, future perfect. Tell us, I mean, sounds idealistic here, but tell us some yes. more. Well, you know, in, in, uh, in strategy and scenario planning in, in life, I mean, there's a whole range of possible outcomes uh, that, that we can plan for and we can envision and we can get to uh, all the way from perfect to pathetic. And what we try to do in the book is ask the question of, well, if you were to relax all of the constraints that you have today and just have the problems and just have the tools, how would you solve those problems in 30 years? That's the, that's the perfect outcome. You know, that's the optimal outcome. And um, we use a tool we call future histories to say, what does that optimal outcome look like? In 30 years, let's talk about some problems that we, we face today, climate change, healthcare, uh, energy poverty, what's the optimal outcome we can imagine given the tools that we'll, we will have and try to write the narrative around that. So a history in the sense of what's the narrative of that time frame if we were living in that time frame we want to achieve? Um, because, you know, we as humans, are, we're really social animals. We're a lot like, you know, a caveman around a fire. We, we, uh, we tell stories to each other. Uh, we, we develop consensus around those stories. We do collective action based upon shared views of those stories. So we try to say, okay, what's that shared story of that future perfect, that, that optimal outcome that we want to achieve? And if we can articulate that, then we can ask the question, okay, if that is the future we want to aim for, how do we work backwards to today and ask ourselves, how do we get there? So rather than starting from today, and sort of meandering forward, we posit instead that we should identify the future that we want and then work towards it. What do you see as being the most difficult obstacles to overcome? I mean, from what you just said, coming up with a collective will seems like a, a really tough thing to conquer right now in our society. Yeah. Well, the first thing is to come up with a collective story, right? To come up with a story that transcends the, the partisanship of today um, and the self-interest of today and place ourselves in that future uh, without the constraints that we think we have. So, you know, oftentimes, whether we're talking about our personal lives or our corporate lives or governmental lives, we, we say, uh, wouldn't that be nice? Oh, but that'll never happen because X, Y, Z. Well, that might be true, but the first thing to do is to eliminate, take away X, Y, Z and say, you know, um, what do we actually need to happen? So in climate, you know, to deal with climate change, what we need to do is we need to get rid of 50 billion tons of uh, carbon emissions globally by 2050, 50 billion tons. It's, a, it's, it's actually a numerical problem, right? Then we can sort of say, okay, where do those 50 billion tons come from? 
you know, 8% comes from the transportation, you know, from cars, cars, trucks, and, and buses and, and such. Okay. What do we deal with that? Um, you know, another 8% comes from other forms of transportation, 8% comes from cement and, and steel. So you break down the problem and say, okay, how can we deal with, you know, what do we need, what goal do we need to get to? But unless we agree on the goal, we'll never reach it. So future histories are about reaching the goal. And then we can tackle the question of how do we build consensus, but consensus around what is the first question. And to some extent, we have to put some faith in the continuing rapid advancement of technology saying, we may not be able to do this right now. The, com the computers may not be able to figure it out right now, but in five years and 10 years, they will be able to. Oh yes. You know, um, and I, I, th I think about it differently. It's not faith in technology. It's um, appreciation of, of the patterns of technological change. So I think that it's actually the facts in, around technology. Now, so we know over the last 20 years, the cost of, of genomic sequencing has, um, has gone by, down by a factor of a million and, it's, and has speeded up by a factor of a million. That's a fact. Um, it's pretty clear assertion, but pretty close to the fact that that trend will continue. Um, now, what we do with that is unclear. As, as, uh, as we say in the book, these are the building blocks, but they're not the buildings, right? Th these building blocks can create, you know, an infinite number of different scenarios, different buildings. And the question is, what do we as the builders, how do we shape those building blocks into the buildings that, that we want? Um, Tell our audience a little bit about your background and, and what led you to writing this book. Sure. I, I'm a, uh, you know, I, I started off as a technologist. Um, my focus was in computer science, and artificial intelligence. I was part of the uh, World Headquarters Artificial Intelligence Group of, of a major consulting company and, and have spent my career thinking about how advanced technology affects uh, business and asking the question of, well, how, do business, how does business uh, use it more effectively and how, does, how do we build it to be more effective in business? But over the course of the last 10 years, so I've shifted that focus to, to a larger set of questions, not just you know, how do we optimize business, but how do we optimize uh, the larger kinds of problems that we want? I think that business can play a large part in that if framed properly, uh, but it's a bigger problem than what uh, businesses alone can do. So I asked the question of, um, how do we leverage technology for wider good, for social good? Well, we really appreciate you taking the time with us. The book, once again, is titled A Brief History of a Perfect Future, Inventing the World We Can Proudly Leave Our Kids by 2050. A great read. Go get it. Chunka Moy, thank you for taking the time with us. Thanks for having me. Now this. It takes a lot of listening to build a better radio. And that's just what the folks at Sea Crane have done. Bob Crane and his crew, nestled among the rivers and tallest trees in the world in Fortuna, California, have made a habit of listening to their customers. And that's just what they've done in building the CC Skywave SSB, the Swiss Army knife of portable radios. For everyday listening to AM or FM in the yard or patio or on the nightstand, without having to drain a mobile phone battery, it's a great companion. But it is also a companion equipped for NOAA weather information and alerts that can be life-saving. 
You can listen to FEMA and Coast Guard transmissions, too. Beyond all of that, you can tune into shortwave signals from around the world. It's compact, easy to take with you, and built to last. The CC SkyWave SSB. Click on the link at textonation.com.